Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Shana Swan is an award-winning scientist based at Mount Sinai and one of the leading environmental and reproductive epidemiologists in the world. She has published more than 200 scientific papers and has been featured in extensive media coverage globally. And now she is the best-selling author of Countdown, how our modern world is threatening sperm counts, altering male and female reproductive development, and imperiling the future of the human race. Shana, welcome. Thank you. So Countdown is filled with extraordinarily disturbing data as we are experiencing a a bit of fertility crisis to say the least. And you say in the book, I quote, the problem isn't that something is inherently wrong with the human body as it has evolved over time. It's that chemicals in our environment and, and unhealthy lifestyle practices in our modern world are disrupting our hormonal balance causing varying degrees of reproductive havoc that can foil fertility and lead to long-term health problems even after one has left the reproductive years, end quote. So I'm going to go straight to the next piece of data. We're going to start with male fertility because we don't typically start there in the conversation around fertility. And, and wow, this statistic from 1973 to 2011, the total sperm count of men in Western countries dropped by 59%. So what's, I know this is a big question, but, but what's driving this? And are you concerned that sperm count, we're headed to, towards sperm count zero? So those two questions probably cover most of the book, right? <laughs> yes, I know it's a big question. It's a big. I would, I, 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 but but I, I will close. The book's fantastic, and it, and it's and it's scary. But you also close with, and we'll get there. Here are the things we can do to, to avoid. Right. It. So there is a message of hope at the end. But wow, some of these statistics. Wow. Yeah. So what is? Should we start with what is? Yeah, let's, role in this decline? Yeah, let's talk about the men first. We don't usually talk about the men first as we talk about fertility. So let's talk about the men. Let's talk about us. So it's true that men are never held responsible for failures of fertility, failures to conceive. It's usually thought to be the woman's fault. Even repeated miscarriage, it turns out, is often due to the trouble with the man's sperm, even though that's thought of as a female condition. And certainly fertility itself is sort of equal parts male and female. Just to break it down a little further, it's about one third male, one third female identified causes, and then one third unknown or joint causes. So that adds up to 50-50. So we were all in this together, males and females. And the problem is that men are very reluctant to address their sperm function, their reproductive function. I don't know about you, but most men that I've talked to, most men that I've interviewed have no idea what their sperm count is unless they've tried to get a woman pregnant or accidentally gotten a woman pregnant. But they just assume that everything is good and when it's time to make a baby, they'll be fine. And that, I think, has to change now. I think that people have to... I think all men of reproductive age, while they're still young, actually, would do well to find out what their sperm count is. 
So there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that there's something they can do about it if it's not very good. And we can talk about what those things are. But also they should be aware that having problems with their sperm could predict health problems more generally later in life. So it's actually not just about having babies. It's also about how they're going to, how healthy they're going to be as they get older and when they're even when they're going to die. And that's related to sperm count. So I think just as we learn about our cholesterol and our blood pressure pretty early in life, maybe before we have problems with it, so that if there are problems, we can do something about it. I think that should be done with sperm count as well. Well, also men are facing declining testosterone. You say declines yes. 1% year over year since 1982. That's a lot of decline over a significant yes. period of time. Yes. And you're right. And so the decline in testosterone is actually part of the same picture, I think. that So they have declining testosterone and declining fertility and declining sperm count, concentration, morphology. They're all tied. They're all correlated, right? And so there's also some evidence of, of sexual problems or problems with libido, erectile dysfunction and so on, which is very concerning, of course, to a lot of men. And so I think rather than keeping this in the closet, as it were, that people should be more open about these problems, share these problems, not necessarily at a cocktail party, but certainly with their doctors and should get checked out. And like I say, there are things that people can do to improve their reproductive health. So, and I'll, and I'll segue to female fertility quickly, and, and then we'll go to, to the what is, is driving this. Another, and the book is just filled with so many phenomenal nuggets and statistics. And, and although many of them scary, I will add, there is hope. You have, you have a plan. We have a plan. There are things we can do to right this ship, if you will. And, and so let's segue to what's driving this, which essentially are chemicals, endocrine disruptors, plastics. You have a great line in the book. You, you, you talk about the chemical class name game. <laughs> so can, can we start there to the, the what and why and how and, and chemicals and how they're affecting our fertility and sure. maybe break that down for us? Yeah. So the, our fertility and our reproductive health depends on hormones. Everyone knows that testosterone for women, estrogen, progesterone, and so on. And so if, if, if there were chemicals coming into our body through our, the products in our daily lives, which interfere with those hormones, you could imagine that they might be able to disturb reproductive function. And that is what's going on. I think we know enough from animal and human studies to know that happens. We don't know what percent of the problems in fertility and sperm count are due to these exposures. But certainly these exposures can drive down reproductive health, drive down sperm count, drive up miscarriage rates, and so on. Okay? So not all chemicals, it's not an uh, equal opportunity for all chemicals to do this. Some chemicals are designed, if you will, to, to mimic hormones. So for example, there are several phthalates, which is a difficult word for me and most people, P-H-T-H-A-L-A-T-E-S, chemicals that make plastic soft, flexible, and so on. So these chemicals have the surprising property that they actually 
reduce testosterone. And so this is bad news for male reproduction. And that's particularly bad news when a pregnant woman gets a lot of these chemicals in her body through her products. She's carrying a male and those chemicals drive down testosterone. So as you saw in the book, that has the ability of altering the genitals of that male in measurable ways. And I was just on the Joe Rogan podcast and he gave me the title of the Paul Revere of Tiny Penises and Taints, which I think is a riot. But it's because in our studies, we showed that when the mother was exposed to more of these phthalates, the boys were born with measurably smaller penises and shorter what's called taints on the street or gooch or grundle, but what technically is the anal genital distance. So it's the distance from the anus to the genitals. Now, nobody has thought about this until we started applying this to the study of phthalates. It had been used in animal models for about 100 years but only to figure out whether the animal was a male or a female. So it's so dramatically different in males and females that when a litter is born and you want to know whether a particular pup is a male or female, you look at that distance. You can see it with your naked eye. It's 50 to 100% longer in a male than a female. Okay? There's nothing else in our bodies that are that different between males and females except the actual genitals themselves or the reproductive organs themselves. But in terms of what we can measure, in terms of our hand size or height or weight, hip size, nothing is that different, right? But this 50, imagine it. Males and females were 50 to 100% different in height. Well, <laughs> you can see what that would be. So it's a huge difference, right? And what happens when the mother's exposed to phthalates at higher levels, not real high, but say the upper 25% of the population, then her boy has this distance more is more feminine it's shrunk it's not it hasn't expanded i should say to the male size and so why would we care about that so the answer is if you look at adults and you measure their in a gentle distance then you see as we showed in our study in rochester new york that their sperm count is directly related to their anogenital distance. Longer anogenital distance, higher sperm count. So it's like a readout. I mean, in some sense, maybe you don't even need to measure your sperm count, just get your AGD checked. I'm, I'm kidding about that. I think you do need lots of things about your sperm, but it's very interesting. It tells you what the fetus was exposed to in utero, right? And then what's gonna happen in the future in terms of fertility and sperm count. So it's pretty important, and it's related to phthalates. And then just recently, two days ago, I think there was a study that came out of Sweden. I'm just telling you this because it's so new and exciting to me. They found by looking at women undergoing cesarean section that the levels of persistent chemicals, which are also endocrine disruptors like PCBs and dioxins, the levels of those chemicals in the tissue of these women undergoing surgery 
were related to the number of eggs in their ovaries and the quality of those eggs. Wow. Very difficult to get that information because you can't get the tissue, right? And that points to the problem in studying males and females. Males, pretty easy. You can see the genitals, you can measure the sperm count, you can measure lots of things about the sperm. But for women, you have to go internally, either with ultrasound or surgery to actually see what's going on. So that's why we know much less about women's reproductive health than we do about men. So let's come back to the the chemical class name game. So you touched mm-hmm. on phthalates and you've got these different classes. You've got POPs, DDT, and PCBs. So can you just walk us through each of those different classes? What are they and where are they lurking in our households? Right. So let me dismiss, first of all, the POPs. Those are persistent organic pollutants. And those were the bad guys that were banned by the Stockholm Convention quite a long time ago. And they're not in our household unless we're very unlucky. Maybe we're living in a malarial high risk area. And then we have still spraying of DDT, but usually it's not used. And similarly for PCBs, they're not used. They are, however, sometimes stored in the environment and make their way into our foods like our fish and so on. So that is a risk, but that's not the one that I've been studying and we've concerned about most right now. What we're concerned about now are those that are called non-persistent and those are the phthalates. No shorthand for that as a group, but individually they have names like DE, metabolites have the names like MEHP, and it doesn't matter. There's lots of alphabet soup here, but three of them, diethylhexyl phthalate, dibutyl phthalate, benzylbutyl phthalate, are really strongly testosterone lowering and the ones that I'm most concerned about for this male effect that we talked about. Then there are the bisphenols, and I think most people know about BPA. That's one bisphenol. A. So it's bisphenol, but there's other bisphenols, right? So there's bisphenol F, bisphenol S, and others. And so we can talk about this later, but most people are aware of BPA. They buy BPA-free bottles. BPA makes plastic hard, unlike phthalates, which make plastic soft, but they're added for this quality of making plastic hard. And when the bottle says BPA-free, I'm sure it is BPA-free, but it could very well have other bisphenols like BPF or BPS. And so there's a substitution, we call it regrettable substitution because the consumer now is kind of tricked, right? They think they're buying a safe bottle, they're buying a BPA-free bottle, but really they're buying a bottle with BPF or BPS. And they are also harmful in the same way. So those are two other you know, kinds of chemicals, phthalates, bisphenols, then we have the and the PFOS chemicals. So these are chemicals that are, they're perfluorinated compounds. And they're compounds that are used for a whole range of purposes. But one of them is to, we put them on pans, frying pans. They're barriers. Think of them as barriers. So they, on our nonstick pans, they're on our clothing to keep them water resistant. They're on paper to keep oil from going through paper, like in pizza boxes. So these are all chemicals that are actually not very short-lived, not like phthalates and phenols, which leave the body in four hours. These can stick around for years. So they're kind of halfway between the non-persistence and the POPs, the very persistent chemicals. 
And then there are pesticides, many classes of pesticides, and there's no alphabet soup for those particularly as a class, but many of them related to reproductive health and lower sperm count and so on. And then there's the flame retardants. So the flame retardants are in our furniture. They were well-meaning, I guess, when they were put in. We didn't want to have our couches catching on fire or our kids' pajamas catching on fire. But it turned out that they have severe effects on our hormonal systems, particularly our thyroid hormones, our immune systems, and so on. So those that's sort of a brief overview of the kinds of chemicals. And if you put it all together, what you see is they're everywhere. They're all the time, everywhere, silent, coming into our bodies, very hard to keep out. Yeah, I think, you know, if I'm listening, I'm saying, all right, I throw my hands up. What can I do? Okay, maybe there there are a couple easy items on the list, if you will. Pesticides, I can try to buy organic when I'm able to afford that or when it makes sense. I could look for BPA-free. I can find the right frying pan, if you will. But, you know, okay, furniture. I don't know. What what, what do I do there? I got to have a sofa. (laughs) Well... (laughs) <laughs> if it's if it's a new sofa, it will probably say on the label. They will if they're doing it right and they're keeping out the PFAS, the flame retardants, they will say, you know, that they're free of these chemicals. You can also I actually don't know if Environmental Working Group goes into I don't think fr- they do furniture. I don't think they do furniture either. Yeah. No. I think we're kind of on our own there for now. Anyway, they probably will get to it. But I and I personally haven't bought any furniture recently, so I don't know. But I would bet that a savvy furniture maker wanted to capture the market would advertise the fact that they're keeping these flame retardants out of their furniture, if that's what they're doing. But there are many things that are labeled um, as safe and people can go to environmental working group and look at their consumer guides for many things and personal care products. Yep. That's a big one. Personal care is huge. Skin products, cleaning products as well. Cleaning products, sunscreen and foods. They advise on foods and talking about foods. This is a hard one, but when food is processed, right? So it's put into a sauce or into a soup or into some kind of vegetable, frozen meal, it's going to go through a processor. And many of those processors are lined with plastics or go through tubes that are plastic. And when food goes through a plastic tube, then it picks up the phthalates that are in the tube and that goes into the food and that goes into our body. And the best evidence of that is if you look in the newborn nursery, You can picture a newborn nursery, right? And there's this little baby in the bassinet and there are all these tubes coming in and they're providing nutrients of various kinds. So there've been a couple of studies now that have showed that the number of tubes that go into that baby is directly related to the level, the number of phthalates and level of phthalates in the baby's urine. And that's because of what I told you, it comes out of the tubing, goes into the, yeah, food. What are, what are some of the other practical things we should look for in our homes? I, I believe you mentioned curtains in the book. What, what are some of the other places where anyone smell. listening could, could take action immediately? Smell. Smell. Anything fragranced will have phenols and phthalates in it, okay? And so those nice, you know, walls, plug-ins where you want to improve the smell in your, some area in your house, not a good thing. In your car, those little dashboard hangers that improve the smell of the car, not a good thing. If you can buy soaps 
detergents fragrance free they'll be tend to be phthalate free so just smell think about smell and try to avoid buying products with fragrance and what about in terms of lifestyle you, know, you talk about stress and the role stress plays could you, oh, you talk a little yeah. about lifestyle and, and and yeah so the lifestyle factors that matter for health are those that matter for reproduction not surprisingly okay so you know that for your overall health, you'd want to avoid cigarette smoke, right? Whether it's active or passive. And we know that smoking has a strong toll on man's sperm count, particularly his own smoking and as well as his mother smoking and his father smoking in the period before he was conceived. And I should say the mother's and father's smoking is actually more important because the damage caused then is a lifetime change. It affects the development. Whereas if the man is smoking, one of the things he can do to clean up his act, if you will, is to stop smoking or to avoid passive smoke. And that actually has been shown to increase sperm count. So that's a good thing. Alcohol is a little more complicated. Alcohol is one of the exposures that is has a sweet spot, if you will. So a moderate amount of alcohol is probably good for your heart and your sperm. But binge drinking is bad for both. So you don't want, you don't want to avoid binge drinking. Same thing is true of exercise. So people who are exercise crazy, like women who are marathon runners, may not menstruate. We know that affects the hormones, right? But also, couch potato behavior is not a good thing. So that's another U-shaped curve where there's a, there's a good amount of exercise, but don't overdo it and certainly don't stop doing it at all. So exercise is a good thing. And let's see, stress. So good luck in cutting down stress, right, in this day and age. I mean, really. But we showed that men about the number of what's called stressful life events. Those are death in the family, severe illness, moving, changing jobs, marital problems, this kind of divorce. So the number of stressful life events that a man had in our study and in other studies were directly related to his sperm count. So it's a catch-22, isn't it? You want to say decrease your stress, but here if you're having trouble with fertility, that's going to make you stressed. So it's a hard thing to get around. But to the extent, maybe through meditation, maybe through some exercise program that lowers your stress level, you can decrease your stress. So you mentioned smoking. And in my opinion, uh, I'm going to segue to marijuana. My opinion on this is not a popular opinion these days, is I think marijuana is becoming widely accepted, which I find disturbing. The, the data around teenage use and its negative effect on cognition and brain development, it, look, it, it, it's not good. Yeah. Um, and, you, and you go in a different direction in the book. You, you reference a 2015 study from Denmark that found that regular regularly smoking marijuana more than once a week was associated with a 29% lower sperm count. Even worse, men ages 18 to 28 who use marijuana more than once a week, which is like every, you know, it's like me in college, everyone, that's when they smoke, yeah. or I think that's expanded, yeah. more than once a week, as well as other recreational drugs, reduce their total sperm count by 55%. And then here we are, as like every state, so marijuana is okay. We're all good. Right. So let's talk well, about that for a minute. <laughs> sure. So, so marijuana is like a hot new 
commodity, a hot new topic to research. I think that the research on this is, is not all in. I think, but those Danish studies suggest that it's not good for you. There are some studies, I just have to say full disclosure, which suggest that it also might have a sweet spot. So it might be that modest use or occasional use might actually be better than no use. I wouldn't say Uh, that, but I'm saying that it's one possible reading of of one recent study. So I would say... I mean, people are not going to stop using marijuana because of their sperm count. They're just not going to do it unless they're having trouble with their fertility. So I would say if you're having trouble with your fertility, you want to think of what to change. The things that I talked about, and I have not yet talked about diet, by the way, in terms of exercise and smoking and passive smoking and alcohol and stress, I would say I would recommend erring on the side of caution because the data aren't all in, why, if you really want to get pregnant, then cut it out. It's, um, (laughs) I'll come back to a point you made earlier. I think most men don't think about it until it's time to get pregnant, but Mm -hmm. I think where most men where you're, where this is also a problem, what you touched on, I think where men will pay more attention is they start to experience erectile dysfunction at at a very young age, which you also talk about in the book. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the relationship between those behaviors and erectile dysfunction. But chemicals, yes. There are some evidence that, yes, but limited evidence, some evidence that chemical exposures are related to erectile dysfunction in the sense those that drive down testosterone, right? So lowering of testosterone is almost surely, at least in part, due to environmental chemicals. There is a study from China, I think we talk about it in the book, where men who were manufacturing bisphenol A, I think, were having more erectile problems and and more sexual dysfunction. And by the way, on the female side too, in our study, women who had higher levels of phthalates reported less sexual satisfaction. So it, mind and body are, of course, connected, and the brain is you might think of as one of the sex organs. A friend of mine who's a neuroscientist said it's the largest sex organ in the body. So it's not surprising that how you feel about sex and, and sexual satisfaction is also related to hormones and things that alter hormones. So I think in a perfect world, we, we'd live in the country, we'd grow our own organic food, we'd make our own products. That would be our Shangri-La in terms of avoiding uh, chemicals, if I were to generalize, but, you know, I think we both live in New York City. There are a lot of people who live in cities. What can someone live, you know, a city dweller is living in a apartment building trying to do their best. What, what can we do? What should we do for all of our urban listeners? So, by the way, I'm not sure that this, Jason, this is a, an, that urban livers, dwellers have a higher exposure than rural. And let me just say that in our study in Columbia, Missouri, where I was living, which was an agricultural community, those men had only half as many moving sperm as men in the urban center of Minneapolis. Wow. And we tied it to pesticides in their urine. Okay? Because they're living in a highly exposed community. There's crop dusters, there's pesticides all over. It can be in the air, it can be in the water. And um, they were affected. So don't assume that 
you know, you might be at an advantage being in New York. <laughs> but, but that said, I think that we should worry about dust. We should leave our shoes at the door. If we can get a vacuum with a HEPA filter, that would be good to remove products. And otherwise, I think our risks are, our risk factors are not much different from those in a less urban community. You made me very happy because, you know, I tend to, you know, I'll hear, oh, New York City is so dirty, chemicals, this and that, and exposure to X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, oh, come on. So that's good to hear. So you've done so much research. I'm curious, was there one thing that just really shocked you when you began the path of researching the book? I think the shock was before I researched. (laughs) I think the shock was when I conducted the study, which motivated the book, which is when I read the 1992 study out of Denmark, which showed that sperm count had declined 50% in 50 years. That was 1992, right? Okay. And I looked at that study and I didn't believe it. (laughs) Okay. And so as a statistician and an epidemiologist, what I do is I try to make it go away, make the result go away. What could explain this? So maybe in the past, sperm was counted differently. Well, actually, sperm count has been, there are many methods, but in our analysis, we used only one method, which has been in place since about 1912. So it's called the hemocytometer, and, and that, that hasn't changed. Oh, so, okay, that didn't explain it. So maybe men in recent years who signed up for these studies were more likely to have problems. Maybe they signed up because they had problems. So that we call selection bias. We just have different men now. That didn't seem to be the case. We also said, well, maybe they're more obese now. Well, that's true, but that turned out not to explain. So anyway, I, I took the, that 1992 study. I said, here are 61 studies that they summarized in that 92 study. I got those 61 studies. I looked for all of these things, age and smoking and obesity and blah, 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 blah. blah. And I did a big model, ran the numbers, And that was where the big surprise was because the slope, the rate of decline had not changed when I accounted for all of those things I or other people could think of. That was a big shock. So in terms of men who are listening or their significant others are are listening right now, and what should men focus on if they want to really get their sperm count to the place they, they they want to get it or need to get it or just to focus on this issue? What, what are some of the things that men should be thinking about, which obviously aren't? So they don't wait to the date they want to get pregnant and it's, oh, crap, we got a, we got a problem here. So I would say if you can afford it, if you have that medical access, you should get your sperm count tested, your sperm tested not just the count, the morphology, the motility, and so on, so that you have that information. If it's lower than ideal in one or more of those factors, then you could start thinking about the things we've talked about. And by the way, like I said, we didn't talk about diet, but I want to say that matters. We'll talk about diet. Yeah. So we've done 
there have been many studies on the role of diet, and it looks like eating a, what's called a Mediterranean diet, so lower in meat, higher in fruit and vegetables, olive oil instead of butter, and so on and so forth. You can Google Mediterranean diet, and it is better than a Western typical diet, okay? So that's one sort of global thing. Then eating organic is actually helpful, and eating more fruit and vegetables that are organic is helpful. And trying to eat less processed meat is helpful. So, and you can, if people are interested, they can actually Google diet and sperm count and see a bunch of things that are written, or they can read Countdown, which I think everybody should do. Yes, everyone should. Right, because we go into these in detail. So once maybe the person that tests the sperm says to the guy, well, this is good. This part of it is not so good. And and then he can avoid cigarette smoke and try to minimize his stress and try to change his diet and, and so on and so forth. And maybe come back six months later because sperm are produced continually. It takes about 70 days to produce a sperm. So your exposure today is going to be relevant for today's sample, but not for a sample 70 days from now. So you have an opportunity to clean that up and you could go back and be retested and hopefully all of those parameters would be improved. So is another thing that people can do if they're concerned about their future exposure, and this is not everybody's solution and it's also expensive, but they might want to freeze sperm. So many more men are freezing sperm these days and there are ways to, there are companies that do this through mail-in, you don't even have to go into the office to give the sample. You can mail it in, and they're quite good now. So that's an option that people have if they want to do that. If they worry, well, maybe in the future I'll have more exposures and it'll get worse, at least they would then have their sperm available. That said, the process of in vitro fertilization is not crystal clear. It's not effortless. It's not without risk. So of course, ideally, you wouldn't go through all that. But I would say if you are worried or concerned, if you're an anxious person, you can try to conceive the normal way, if you will. And you might have that bank sperm in case you need that as a fallback. That might be one one option. And so we have a two little, we have a four and a half year old girl and a, and a two year old girl. And for, for parents of young children, what should we be thinking about? So the risks from these chemicals to children's health is much, much less studied. We know very little actually about the effects on their development between about, so sensitive periods are important here. That's those are the periods when the body is rapidly dividing or growing. So obviously prenatal is very important. And then there's a period soon after birth called the mini puberty, which is thought to be very important for hormonal and reproductive development. And then it's kind of quiescent until pre-puberty. So I don't, I personally have not studied the effect of childhood exposures and few people have studied the effect of childhood exposures on childhood, on child health. If I had a small child, as you do, I would, first of all, teach them good habits by teaching them to eat healthy foods and avoid scent and put their shoes at the door and so on and so forth, all these things we talked about. Why not? I mean, you're teaching them to protect their overall health and hopefully their reproductive health as well. So, 
And in closing, are you optimistic? And for those action-oriented listeners who, who want to make the change, that to be the change that we want to see in the world, what can we all do to... to to, 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 to make the world a better place here. So I would say I'm cautiously optimistic, but I think that the changes that are necessary will take a very big lift, really. I think that we have to change regulation at a very fundamental level because we everyone assumes that the government keeps us safe keeps these products you know clean for us but that's not true yeah i don't i don't assume that anymore yeah right <laughs> <laughs> very different levels of regulation say for drugs you know pharmaceuticals and chemicals and our daily products so we really need to if people want to get active there are many i won't recommend specific action groups but you could people could google ngos and environmental health. They could read Countdown. We have many resources in there. There are ways to participate in studies, to volunteer time for these organizations, um, potentially give money as well, support these organizations. But I think perhaps more important is to start making a noise in terms of regulation. So the regulators actually respond to public pressure and so if people will write their legislators um, and say, we want bigger, better regulation of chemicals in our sofas, <laughs> we want these labels, we want these products that we're exposed to in our pharmacy to have you know, all the chemicals listed, which they don't, and so on. So there's many things that people could demand. I, don't, I can't reinvent the wheel, but as I say, there are many, Defend Our Health, Environmental Working Group, and on and on and on. And like I say, there's a list of these in the book. If people want to take action, there's many ways they can do that. But if they don't, if they only want to take a personal action in terms of changing their lives, I think we've talked about many ways that they can do that. Well, Shauna, thank you so much. I love Countdown. It's an important book. I think everyone needs to read it. We're facing a crisis. And thank you so much for all of the hard work you do to bring some of these. To, look, I, I think when, when you see some of these disturbing statistics, the issue becomes very real. And it's a real issue that affects the future or well-being and overall health of the, the planet. Civilization, I'll go that far with <laughs> fertility crisis. Thank you, Jason. It's been a good conversation. I'm glad to have had the chance to talk to you. Thank Thanks. you so much. 